Pastor Hillcrest Baptist Church in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, my friend, Brother Day. Thank you, God Brother. Bless you. Thank you. All right, Brother Pittman, thank you for that nice introduction. You read that exactly as I had it printed out for you, so thank you. <laughs> that was certainly nice, and what a joy it is to be here. Um, it's been a joy to see a lot of friends, and we're getting older, and that's okay. That's part of God's plan, and uh, good to see a lot of different faces this afternoon. And some of you folks here came this afternoon. Good to see you. Appreciate you. Wow, what a meal. What a meal. And thanks to all the kitchen workers and all who put that together. We appreciate that. And we certainly thank you for the very nice hotel room. And uh, you've treated us like royalty, and we thank you for that. And it's been a joy to be back and, uh, and um, just relive some of the memories and seeing the, the uh, DVD before, we, before uh, 2 o'clock uh, showing the history. It reminded me once again of the great history of this church and, um, and all that really went into it. And it's not one man. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a group. It's people doing their job in ministry and some leading music, some you know, doing all kinds of jobs. And uh, God has blessed you. And uh, we've really had a good time here and, uh, and enjoyed the special music from the Kittle family. We appreciate that. And the choir really looked good and sounded good today. And uh, so it's been good. In your Bible, Daniel 3.18, please, if you'll turn there, Daniel chapter 3. Since there are new people here this afternoon, I will give you an update on my uh, health status. Uh, many of you know that I have stage four melanoma. Been battling that for three years. And currently I'm on medicine six and seven. I've been on so many, I have to number them now, you know. And uh, medicine six and seven, taking together. Either one is pretty strong, and you put them both together, and they're, they're strong. No side effects, though. The doctor has been surprised. Uh, he, when he started me on 6 and 7, he said, some of the people that take this have a fever every day. And he said, don't be surprised if you have some side effects, but I've had no side effects, for which I am thankful. A lot of you have asked, how do you feel? I feel fine. Honestly, if I did not see the lumps and feel the lumps, I would really not know anything is wrong. I'm not sick. I'm not tired. I can do the pastoral ministry and pastor our small church uh, the way I've always been able to do it. And I'm thankful for that. One reason for that is that melanoma is different. Treating melanoma is different from treating other cancers. Uh, If I was on chemo and radiation... I would be sick, I would be tired, and uh, I'm not on chemo and radiation. That does not work very well for uh, melanoma. Uh, Several of my medicines have been medicines that were intended to supercharge my immune system. And if my immune system could be built up and revved up, then the hope was that it would attack the cancer, the melanoma, and uh, destroy it. 
and that did not work. And uh, the other medicines, including the one, the two that I'm on now, uh, have worked fairly well. In the last two months, all the little lumps are gone and the big lumps are shrinking. And we're encouraged by that and thankful for that. But if you read the fine print, it says, uh, just want to let you know that in six to eight months, your body will become resistant to this medicine and it'll stop working and it'll really all come back. I mean, it doesn't say it that plainly, but uh, I've been through it on medicine number three. And uh, the hope is that taking two medicines at the same time, and they're a little different uh, where, they, uh, um, where they work, and hopefully that'll confuse my body a little bit, and maybe I'll go for a year with this medicine working, or maybe a year and a half. That remains to be seen, but all in all, it's in the hands of the Lord, and uh, we serve a, a real big God, a powerful God, who is sovereign and on the throne, and we're trusting him day by day. And uh, so, you know, I don't wake up worrying, I don't worry about what's happening, and I don't think about the melanoma very much. Uh, you know, often when I lie down at night to go to sleep and my mind is still going a little bit and uh, haven't really gone to sleep yet, you know, I think about it a little bit then. But day by day, through the day, uh, making sermons and lessons and visiting and hospital visiting and uh, nursing home preaching and all of that uh, pastors do, I do that and my mind is on those things. And uh, so keep on praying, update your churches. If I'm not on your church prayer list, please put me there. And uh, be sure to pray for me. And it's always encouraging to have people come up and say, we've been praying for you, and a lot of you have done that. And I know that I'm on, I know the church does corporately, and I do appreciate that. And, uh, and we're trusting the Lord, and we thank you. I want to preach this afternoon on this topic. But if not. But if not. That's a strange title. You'll see in a few minutes after the introduction where I get that and where I'm going with it. Christians are losers, is what Ted Turner said a few years ago, speaking at the American Humanist Association. He's an atheist. A founder of CNN, Turner Network, uh, you know, broadcasting TBS and uh, and uh, TNT, and you know all the Turner companies. He apologized for that half-heartedly, uh, as the uh, Christian population was uh, outraged when he said that. The rest of the story is that when he was young, he was uh, his family was a church-going family. And his older sister, who was about 15, when he was, I don't know, 9 or 10, um, died from lupus. And the family had prayed. And prayed more and prayed and trusted God. And God did not heal Ted Turner's sister. Later, the father committed suicide over that incident. Just couldn't get over it. I guess bitter at God, I don't know. One time I was door knocking, I think it was during the time I was here at Addiston, from 83 to 88, door knocking, and uh, I knocked on the door and the man answered and I introduced myself, invited him to uh, Addiston here, I invited him to our church, 
gave him the literature, and he said, I, I, I'm not going to church. I'll never go to church again. Not after what God did to our family. And then he told me a short story. God didn't heal my I don't know, daughter or grandchild, whoever it was. I don't remember exactly. And our whole family prayed, and God didn't come through. And I won't serve a God like that. And he handed back the literature, and he didn't slam the door, but he shut the door. I just wonder if a lot of people have heard so much preaching and so many messages on God's miracle working power and God's healing power and God's providing power and God's delivering power that they just take it for granted that God's going to heal every time, that God's going to heal every sickness. He's going to bring back every prodigal child. He's going to heal every broken marriage. He's going to solve every financial problem and, uh, and bankruptcy and things like that. But sometimes God does not heal. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes God does not meet every financial need the way we think they ought to be met. Sometimes God does not open every prison door. Sometimes God does not put together, put back together that broken marriage. And the question for you today is maybe not a popular one, but one that I must ask this afternoon. What will you do if the answer is no? What are you going to do if God does not come through with a miracle? I hear people sometimes on the radio say, God's got a miracle for you today. But what if God does not come through with a miracle? What if God does not repair that broken home? What if God does not provide and meet that financial need? What if the answer is no? And you pray and you pray and you pray. And you fast and pray. And you get your whole church to pray. And what if the answer is still no? I know God can heal. I know God can provide a miracle. A miracle, I saw this the other day on a church sign. A miracle is God doing what only God can do. I know that God can meet financial needs. I know that God can can come through in a big way. But if he doesn't, I'm still going to love him. I'm still going to serve him. I'm still going to trust him right down to the end. There was a guy named Charles Weigel. His wife walked out on him. She said, I don't want to be married to a preacher. She decided she didn't want to be a preacher's wife anymore, and she took off. Charles Weigel walked uh, down the street onto the pier with the intention of throwing himself into the water and ending it all. He prayed for his wife to come back. She wouldn't come back. He begged God to change his wife's heart. She didn't change. He got to the end of the pier and he looked and 
He turned around and walked back to the house and sat down at the piano. And as he played some songs and played some chords and some keys, a song came to him. And 20 minutes later, he was singing, I would love to tell you what I think of Jesus. Since I found in him a friend so strong and true, I would tell you how he changed my life completely. He did something that no other friend could do. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. There's no other friend as kind as he. No one else could take the sin and darkness from me. Oh, how much he cared for me. You see, when God didn't come through for him, he at first thought he might take his own life, but he can't, when it came right down to it, he said, God, I know you could change my wife and bring her back, but if you don't, I'm still going to love you and serve you. I'm still going to trust you. And the three Hebrew children... I think we're like that. In Daniel chapter 3, where you are, the uh, Nebuchadnezzar had erected a huge statue, an idol, if you will. All the government officials were gathered together, captains and generals and governors and princes, and the three Hebrew young men who were government officials. And they were told at the sound of the music that everyone was to bow and get on their face on the ground and worship the image. And the music played, and people bowed down. Everyone bowed down except the three Hebrew children. And I don't know, when a thousand people bow down and there's three men standing up, you stick out, uh, obviously, and they were turned in. And Nebuchadnezzar decided to give them a second chance. And that takes us to verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of thine hand, O king. But if not, there's my title, but if not, be it known unto thee, O king, that we will not serve thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. You see the singularity of their answer, because they answered together. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered together. It was not just one of them. They were together on this. They were not divided in their convictions. They spoke as one. You see the sureness of their answer. We are not careful to answer thee in this matter. We don't have to pray about it anymore. We don't have to confer about it. We've made up our minds. We've got our convictions. We will not change. We're not going to bow. Their answer was sure and unchanging. You see the supernatural in their answer. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able 
to deliver us from the burning fire furnace. We have a big God. We have a God who can deliver us. God is able. God is able to deliver us. And we trust he will deliver us. But then you see the submission in the answer. I think this is the most noble part. God's able to deliver us, so we trust that he will deliver us. But if not, we just want you to know, Nebuchadnezzar, our God's able to deliver us. We trust he will deliver us. But if not, we're not bowing down to the image. We're not uh, worshiping your gods. We're not giving up our beliefs. We are continuing to worship the Lord, serve the Lord, and trust him to the end. For all they knew, they were uttering their final words. Because you know the penalty. Someone who wouldn't bow would be thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. For all they knew, they were writing their own death sentences right then. For all they knew, they would wake up in glory, or I guess in the Old Testament, in the place of the dead, Sheol. And I'm, I'm here today to tell you that your faith needs a but-if-not clause in it. Your faith needs a but-if-not clause in it. I'm not sure exactly when I began wondering about these things. When I began thinking to myself, what if the Lord does not heal me? Maybe it was after the first medicine. Interleukin 2. They said, uh, it's very rough on your heart. You'll need a stress test to make sure your heart can handle it. Went through that with, without any difficulty. I was admitted to the intensive care unit for a week. Bone marrow transplant intensive care. Not like your regular intensive care that you can picture. This had nice TV, windows, uh, makeshift bed for Vicky to spend the night and stay there. Uh, down the hall, a uh, microwave oven and refrigerator, a game room, a bathroom shower. I would receive this medicine around the clock, every eight hours around the clock, as long as my body could stand it. Uh, they gave me the booklet on what to bring, what not to bring, what's going to happen. And the booklet said you will gain 25 pounds of water weight. And uh, gave me all the other you know, medical information that I needed. So the day finally arrived and I was admitted. And first thing they did is wheel in the scale and weigh me. And then she wrote that down on a marker board there in the room, which said, uh, you know, your nurse and your CNA and all that. She wrote that down. She said, you can't leave until you're back down to that weight again. In other words, we're going to put 25 pounds on you, and we're going to take 25 pounds off of you all within that week. So the first, you know, the first time came, and I received the medicine. This medicine is so expensive, they don't put it in the tube and shoot it up through the, uh, the vacuum tube, you know, up to the, uh, the ninth floor. 
Someone, on a, someone gets on an elevator carrying it and, and brings it up there. They don't want anything to happen to it, I guess. I guess someone's got to always have it in their possession. About a half a cup, looked like about a half a cup of medicine. And I, I, I take that uh, without much difficulty. And, uh, and, uh, but, sh- but very shortly, my blood pressure is going up. And, and uh, after every dose, my water weight is going up. And soon I'm puffy. And, and you could take your finger and touch my skin, and when you moved your finger, my finger, your fingerprint would be there because the skin was kind of red, and it was just so much water. And I gained the 25 pounds of water. And then uh, time, you know, eight hours later, time for the next dose, next dose. Uh, in between, they're, they're taking blood between each of those because before every dose, the nurse has to call the doctor and give him all my numbers and he says, okay, it looks good, blood pressure, high, but tolerable. And, uh, and by now, my breathing is almost double the normal rate of breathing. And by now, my uh, heart rate is almost double the resting heart rate. And um, my gastrointestinal system is kind of messed up. I won't get any more graphic than, than that. And, uh, and it's miserable. And I take dose after dose. And I finally said to the nurse, how many, what's the average amount, a number of doses that people get? And she said, oh, oh, five or six. And I was already on five by then. And I said, I'm going to keep going. And, uh, and, and they were watching electrolytes and all, just every kind of blood test and, and everything. And, and, uh, Finally, I was on dose number 10. I took no, dose number 10. And after that, the doctor said, no, I'm pulling the plug. It's getting too dangerous. Your blood pressure, you know, everything is, everything is out of whack. And uh, it's too dangerous. And they stopped and gave me a lot of Lasix. And I gave them a lot of water. And the water weight came off and eventually went home. That week, went home that week. Uh, next, and you, you really feel okay by the time you go home. You're able to really go back to work again in a day or two. And uh, I basically thought to myself, I hope that does something. After all that, how grueling that was, I thought, I hope that does something. And they said, now we're going to give you two weeks, and we're going to do that all over again. You're going to have two courses. And then we'll wait a couple months and do a CT scan, and we'll measure your melanoma uh, then compared to what it was, and we'll see if it's shrinking. So I take the second course and go through the same procedure, and it's grueling. And, um, and I think, I hope this helps. I hope this does something. But I could feel new lumps every week. Sometimes every day uh, I'd be taking a shower, and, you know, and I feel a little pain there. And I say to Vicki, it's going to be a lump there in about two or three days, and there'd be one there. And little lumps were growing bigger, and new lumps were coming every week. And finally, it was time for the CT scan, and I said to Vicky, it didn't work. Uh, everything, you know, it's growing, uh, little ones are growing, and more and more are appearing. And uh, the doctor walked in with kind of a dejected look on his face. And to save him from having to say it, I said, uh, the interleukin did not work, did it? I said, I feel the little lumps are growing, and I'm feeling new lumps every day almost. He said, yeah, you're right, it didn't work. So I had been on the internet to see what the next medicine would be. And uh, I saw a medicine called Yervoy, Y-E-R-V-O-Y. And I read the warnings. Warning, 
This could cause colitis leading to death. This could cause hepatitis leading to death. This could, cla- could cause pneumonitis leading to death. This could cause nephritis leading to death, and about four or five more. And uh, so I thought to myself, I hope he doesn't give, put me on that. And so uh, when, he, when he agreed with me about the bad news, the interleukin didn't work, he said, we're going to start you on ipilimumab. Ippi for short, I-P-P-I, Ippi for short. And he walked out of the room, and I said to Vicky, I said, I'm sure glad he's not putting me on your boy. <laughs> and uh, the nurse came in with a booklet, and she said, well, you're going to start your boy next week. And then I remembered that these medicines have a trade name or a brand name, like your boy, and they've got a clinical name that the doctors use, like Ipilumanab. And I go on your boy. Maximum of four doses. I took all four. Uh, every three weeks you get a dose. More lumps coming, more lumps showing up, little lumps growing. Another CT scan in a few months. Doctor comes in and I said, the Yervoy did not work, did it? And he said, no, no. And somewhere around then is when I was going through the book of Daniel. And somewhere around then is when I saw what, these, what, what Daniel wrote here about these three young men. But if not... And I said to myself, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to be. I said, I, said to, I said to Vicki, you know, I've been a pastor for 30 years. I've told many people facing problem, who were facing problems, trust the Lord. He's, he's sovereign. He's on the throne. Uh, our lives are in his hands. He's running things. And I said, now it's my turn to show them what it's like. Now it's my turn to practice what I preach. And, and live it out in front of them, in front of my family, many of whom are not saved. And so my faith has a but-if-not clause. Because when the interleukin didn't work, and the ervoid didn't work, I started thinking, what if God doesn't heal me? What if God doesn't use the medicine to heal me, or heal me outright, miraculously? What am I going to do? How am I going to act? What's my attitude going to be? What's my testimony going to be? And I wanted to get that settled. And then came Medicine 3, which worked dramatically, and the lumps disappeared. But in eight months, I felt a new lump, and the doctor said, well, it's, uh, your body's resistant to it, so it's coming back, and it came back worse than before. Then Medicine number 4 was a, a, an, an experimental thing that I joined, and they injected me with herpes simplex virus that had been uh, genetically modified in about four or five different ways. And that didn't work. And then number five was the newest thing that came out last September. And, uh, and uh, breakthrough in melanoma treatment. And, of course, that did not work. So now I'm on six and seven. You know, Job, I think, had a button, if not faith. Job 1-1, please. Job must have been the most confused man in the world. Job 1.1 says there was a man, in, a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. That man was perfect and upright, one that feared God and eschewed evil. He was respected in the community. He had a great testimony. He hated evil. He was a follower of God. He was the greatest man, the greatest man in that territory. But in a few days, everything changed. 
without provocation, without a reason that Job could uh, detect, without any change in Job's lifestyle, things changed. He didn't turn to false gods. He didn't backslide. He didn't worship idols all of a sudden. He didn't go off into deep sin. But in one day, the Sabaeans attacked and took all of his oxen. Fire fell from heaven and consumed his sheep and all the workers, except one that got away. The Chaldeans took his camels. A tornado or whirlwind of some sort uh, destroyed the house in which his ten children were and their spouses. His health failed him. His wife turned against him. His friends tried to encourage him by asking him what he'd done to deserve all this judgment of God. And you see in verse 20, Job 1.20, Job's reaction to this. Then Job arose and rent his mantle. He tore his jacket and shaved his head and fell down on the ground and worshipped. He worshipped. Hands blistered, maybe even bleeding from digging ten graves. Ten fresh graves on the hillside. Children gone. Children dead. His, his plantation just gone. Everything's gone. Job fell down and worshipped, verse 21, and said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Some people would have turned their back on God and said, uh, uh, you know, uh, cursed God and, shook their, and uh, shook their fist at God. I've seen people do that. But not Job. Not Job. Job had a but if not faith. He even said, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. A but if not kind of faith. Let's go now to Hebrews 11, please. Hebrews 11. The heroes of faith had a but if not kind of faith. Hebrews eleven thirty two. Verse 32, Hebrews 11, what, and what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David also and Samuel and of the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again. Put your finger on again and just hold it there because I'm going to pick up from there in just a moment. We love to hear about those whom God has delivered. We love to hear of those who, through faith, subdued kingdoms. The story of Gideon. Deborah and Barak and the others mentioned here. Those who, who stopped the mouths of lions, valiant in, in fight. Sign me up. I'd love to be in that group. God worked miraculously for them. 
Their faith was honored by God. But there was another group. Now, you can take your finger off the word again because we're looking at, we'll start right at, we'll start with the next word. And others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, stoned. they were sawn asunder, they were tempted, were slain with a sword, they wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Do you see the big difference between the two groups? The first groups quenched the mouths of, or quenched the the violence of fire and stopped the mouths of lions. The second group were cut in half, sawn asunder, imprisoned, killed, wandered in sheepskins and goatskins in the desert. And maybe someone would say, if they just had enough faith, they'd be like the first group. But wait a minute. Verse 39 said they they obtained a good report through faith. They got an A plus in faith. But you see, in the first group, God came through in a mighty, miraculous way. But that wasn't all of it. There were some that did not see that. They were stoned. And they suffered all the problems you see there. It's one thing to have faith to escape. It's another thing to have faith to endure. It's one thing to be sick and have faith to be healed. It's another thing to be sick and not be healed, but still have faith. It's harder. It's one thing to be delivered. It's another thing to die, and all by faith. Make sure there is a but if not clause in your faith. You see, God's sovereign. You see that in those two groups. In one group, God worked miraculously and helped them and delivered them. In the other group, God did not. Why didn't he? I don't know. God can do whatever he pleases. He's sovereign. He may help those, he may not help these. He may answer your prayer, but not your prayer. He's sovereign. I once had a person tell me, it's a cop-out to pray And in your prayer, say, if it's according to thy will. God, heal this person on our prayer list if it's according to thy will. And the guy told me it was a cop-out. You probably have surmised it was a, a, you know, a name it and claim it, health, wealth, and prosperity type of person who said that. No, that's recognition of God's sovereignty. If it's according to his will, he'll do it. If it's not according to his will, he's not going to do it. You see that in James and Peter. In Acts chapter 12, we don't have time to turn there. I'm going to speed up a little bit. 
Uh, we've been eating, you know, had a nice meal and I scan the crowd. I don't see any. I don't see anyone sleeping. I don't see anyone dozing. All right, good, good. But this is not a 15-minute warning, though. It's not, it's not that. Don't take it for that. James was arrested by Herod and put in prison, and James was killed, and uh, the Jews loved it. Peter was arrested and put in prison and was chained between two guards and two stood at the door. And God sent an angel and released Peter. And the question is, why didn't he do it for James? Why did God let James be killed and God rescued Peter? I guess he had more for Peter to do. God's sovereign. He can answer one and not answer the other. Luke chapter 22, 39. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine. 39. I think our Savior had a but-if-not faith. When we read this, see if you agree with me. Luke twenty-two thirty-nine. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he came out and he went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that you enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing. You know, Jesus said, if it's according to your will. So that tells you right there, it's not a cop-out. If thou be willing. If it's in your will. Anyway, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. But if not. No, he didn't say it exactly that way, but he said, nevertheless, not thy will, but not my will, but thine be done. Father, if it be, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. If it's your will, remove this cup from me. But if not, thy will be done. I don't understand all that's going on there. Uh, Jesus would be laden with my guilt and the guilt of every believer in here and all believers, and that would be a lot of sin on a sinless Savior. Uh, Maybe he was uh, uh, praying about that. The holiness, the perfect holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and and he becomes sin for us. That That had to be something. Maybe he was uh, uh, thinking of the fact that on the cross he would say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As though God turned his back on his son. They had been in, in eternal unity. And he, on the cross, Jesus becoming sin for us, God would turn his back on him. I don't know what it is about that that caused Jesus to pray that way. But my point is, he had a but, if not, kind of faith. Remove this cup from me, but if you do not, let thy will be done. Not my will, but thy will be done. In conclusion, determine today that you will have a but, if not faith. You say, you know, Brother Day, everything's going fine. 
the bills are paid, the health is fine, the marriage is great, um, the kids are all in churches and serving the Lord, and, and man, great, good for you, enjoy that. But someday, you will need a but-if-not kind of faith. Now, I would think that every true Christian would have that. I mean, I would think that anyone who's dedicated to following the Lord, follow the Lord all their lives, and uh, coming down to their deathbed would just, uh, would just have that. I don't know. But I'll tell you, it caused me to think. God is sovereign, not a puppet. Some of the folks, uh, the health and wealth folks, name it and claim it folks, say if you, if you name it, you are forcing God then to answer that. No, you're not. You're not. You're not as powerful as God. You, I can't force God to do anything and neither can you. And neither can they. You pray, you beg, you plead, you fast, you cry out to God, but he doesn't do what you need. He doesn't come through with a miracle. He doesn't heal or whatever you need. Some become disillusioned. Some become disheartened. Some become upset, angry. Just remember, in Elijah's day, there were many widows, and God sent Elijah to one. And in Jesus' day, in John 5, there was a multitude there by the pool of Bethesda waiting for healing. And God sent him to one man. He could have spoken a word and healed 5,000 people just uh, miraculously. He went to one man and healed him. God may have some purpose in mind that we cannot understand. His ways are above our ways. As the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways above our ways. A few years ago in Iraq, five Baptist missionaries, riding home in the evening after a day of, of working on a water project, heading back to headquarters, heading back for supper, a car came up behind them. They were, in an extend, they were in a pickup truck with an extended cab. car came up behind them, pulled out alongside of them. Men with automatic weapons stuck them out the window and proceeded to riddle the vehicle with bullets. Larry and Gene Elliott were killed instantly. David McDonald died the next day after surgery. Carrie McDonald, David's wife, of only one year, was in critical condition, but she survived. Karen Wilson was a single 38-year-old woman who had been a county detention officer there in her community in California. She had been saved not that long ago, she went on a mission trip. And her heart was burdened for missions. She came home and sold her house and sold everything and said God wanted her in full-time missions. At her funeral at the Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, her pastor, Phil Neighbors, took out an envelope. On the front it said, to be opened only in the event of my death. Didn't say much, but here's what it said. Three lines. 
My objective is to obey. My expectation is to suffer. My reward will be his glory. I'd say she had a but if not kind of faith. Probably going to suffer. Not going to be easy in Iraq. My reward will be his glory. And whatever happens to me, I want to bring him glory. I want to bring him glory. You know, my mother said, uh, you know, especially when the, when the, in the beginning when we weren't used to it yet. We're kind of used to the medicines not working now. But in the beginning when the medicines were not working, you know, she, she, you know, she kind of cried and, and she said, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to trust the Lord. And I said it calmly. And I didn't get hysterical or anything. And I said, you know, God's in charge. And I said, if God wants me to uh, preach to my folks next year, I'll be here next year. And if God is done with me, then I'll be at home in heaven. You know, she couldn't fathom that. She couldn't picture a person taking it that calmly. But that's, that's the attitude I want to have. With God's help, I'll be able to have it. Hope I don't need it. Um, eventually, I mean, uh, none of us are going to get out of here alive unless the Lord comes back. We've heard Brother Hensley say that a number of times. You've heard Brother Hensley say that. certainly true. When the rough times come, when the suffering comes, I hope God answers your prayer and supplies the need. He can do it. He's done it for many people. He's done it for me time after time. I could tell you stories, just don't have time. But if he doesn't, what are you going to do? I hope then you'll be able to say, I'll be like the three Hebrew children. God can deliver me. I believe he will. But if not, I'm still going to serve him, still going to love him, right down to the end, no matter what. It's a matter of testimony. It's a matter of attitude. It's a matter of just loving the Lord. Father, thank you for the example of the three Hebrew children and the others we looked at today. Give us a but-if-not kind of faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.